Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, members of Hamilton's two SLGBTQ communities will be meeting with Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert tomorrow. You can bet this weekend's yellow vest activity on Ottawa Street is going to come up in the conversation. Teachers are only days away from the start of the new school year. They have a brand new sex ed curriculum to work with, but were they given enough time to prepare? And a precedent set of ruling has found Johnson & Johnson guilty of fueling the opioid crisis. What's the fallout for that going to be? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, though, the LGBTQ Advisory Committee is meeting, actually right now as we speak, with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, They have declined to meet with police, uh, but there will be a meeting with uh, police on Thursday. Uh, One of the people who has uh, been invited and will be participating in that is our good friend uh, Graham Crawford, history and heritage owner, uh, the reigning citizen of the year and uh, many other things, and of course a community activist and uh, somebody who's got a deep-seated interest in everything that happens in this community. Uh, good to have you back. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Bill. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about this. I mean, as one person described it to me with the meeting that's going on right now with the mayor and uh, the advisory committee, and then the one that you're going to be going to with Chief Gert tomorrow, are we moving the, ch- the yardsticks here? Are, are you seeing some progress in, in what you'd like to see happen in this community? Well, I think the fact that the two meetings are happening is a, a, a movement forward. Now, it, it depends on what happens at the meetings, of course. But yeah, Bill, it, it is movement forward. The fact is uh, Mayor Eisenberger had refused to consult with his advisory committee. Uh, and then after a lot of public pushback, and you and I have talked about it on your show, um, he did invite them to meet, and they did. I know they did discuss it. I'm not a member of that advisory committee, but I know people who are on sure. the committee. And we've had Cameron on the show. Yeah, Cameron, Cameron of course, is on it as well. Um, so they did discuss it at their most recent meeting, and they did agree to meet with the mayor. Um, and so, as you say, that is happening right now. Now, they are not going the advisory committee, even though the advisory committee was invited to the police meeting. They are not going to go to that, but it's because they their their official mandate is to advise counsel. They're they're not their official mandate does not include advising the police. So they felt that if the police wish to consult with the advisory committee, then the police should come and see them at one of their meetings. What do you think of that idea? I think it's an excellent idea because it's if turnabout is fair play. I mean, they're actually honoring their mandate. They're prepared to to listen. Uh, and hear what the police have to say and then use that information as they advise counsel and the mayor. So I hope the police take them up on their offer to, to come in and present to them. Well, something you might want to talk to Chief Gert about when you have your meeting with him tomorrow. <laughs> Indeed. I'm sure you've got a list. Well, yeah. Anytime there's a meeting of any description, hopefully there is an agenda. Uh, so you have some sort of an idea about what's going to be discussed uh, and maybe even some idea about who's going to attend. Do you have that information for, uh, for for tomorrow's meeting? Do you know who's going to be there? No. In the loosest possible sense, yes. Uh, I happen to know, but not because the police have shared this with me, some of the others who will be there. So Pride, Pride will be there. Mm-hmm. There will be some other individuals who will be there, and I, I, you know, I'll let them name themselves if they wish, uh, but they will be at that meeting. Um, no, the agenda is so skeletal that it doesn't provide you any opportunity whatsoever to sort of prep, to think about how you might want to respond or what information you might want to share. Okay, but you're, you're a businessman, a yes, very successful I, businessman. I mean, it, it, you never ran a meeting like that. 
Uh, Bill, I don't think he probably didn't even attend that. As a consultant who ran meetings internationally, I would have been put out of business within a week if I put that agenda out to my clients. They would have said, what is this? I mean, you know, I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm not suggesting for a second the police are saying, oh, let's just get together and see what comes up. I'm sure they have some idea, but why the secrecy? I don't understand that. Well, part of it, I think, is just a lack of experience uh, and competence, in my opinion, because I don't know how you put an agenda like that together and call yourself a professional. It's, it's just outrageous. However, um, rather than resisting and saying, well, we're not going until you put together a fulsome agenda, uh, I agreed to go. But you're right. I, even though this meeting is being pitched as the police are saying, we'll listen, you talk, uh, we want to ask questions. I know I'm going to ask questions. I know others are going to ask questions. Well, some of the questions we've been raising since June. Yes, yes. And there, I mean, there's, there's a series of, of, of examples of police behavior that have to be talked about. And not just by us, but by the police. They're the ones who behaved. They're the ones who took the action, in other words. Um, and Bill, it's even flaring up. It flared up uh, on the weekend. The yellow vester showed up at the corner of Cannon and Ottawa Street in front of, of businesses. And uh, the police eventually showed up, but they didn't do anything. What they did do was take photographs of people who were uh, protesting against the yellow vesters, including retailers. Does that trouble you? It should. Yeah, it troubles me hugely. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the stuff at City Hall was bad enough, but that seemed to be where they were located. Now they seem to be moving on to other locations as well. Well, apparently it's part of a strategy that is used across the country. So yeah. we get, get ready, BIAs. Uh, they're coming to a corner near you. And the police should are supposedly monitoring social media and many people knew they were at the corner of Cannon and Ottawa long before the police showed up. So again, Chief Gert, what's the strategy? What's the plan? And if the cops do show up, why are they taking photographs of people who are protesting the yellow vesters? There are retailers who complained that when they approached the police to complain about the presence of these people hurting their business, the cops took photographs of the retailers. If I was a member of a BIA, uh, I'd be in touch with my BIA uh, executive director, and I'd also be in touch with my counselor. And in this case, that's Sam Marula, the guy who says, ignore them, pay no attention, they'll go away, except they're there. And I do want to point out, Bill, and I'm happy to, to say this, one of the, the uh, retailers that, that stood up against the, the, the fascists, because they are that, if you, if you dig, dig a little deeper... Yep. Uh, was the Hardy Hooligan. I don't know the Hardy Hooligan. I've never been to the Hardy Hooligan, but I've been now. Uh, I went with a, with a friend. We had a fabulous lunch there, and so many people, hundreds of people, uh, retweeted, liked, shared. Uh, I think the Hardy Hooligan's going to get a spike in business because they did the right thing at the right time. They, they didn't wait. They did, unlike the cops, they took action immediately. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if this sounds anti-police, I'm being critical of the police because I do not think they are embracing this challenge, this crisis, the way they should. And we, we've got to talk about that. Well, that's got to be part of the conversation, uh, hopefully, with what the mayor is doing today with uh, that meeting, but also tomorrow when you meet with police, wherever that's going to be and whoever is going to be there. Uh, in the absence of, of information about this comes speculation, and you know, you've raised questions. A lot of people in this community have raised questions, uh, and I'm, I'm sure the police have answers. 
and I understand, you know, one of them was, well, we can't give away what we're going to do so the bad guys know what we're going to do. That, that, that's I get that to a point. But you have to have trust and you have to have faith in the police that they're going to do their job. And the best way to do that is to say, here's what we can do for you. Right. I mean, when these guys show up at a business district like that, as they did, that's intimidation. I mean, that's they're, they're purely for intimidation. That is their purpose. Uh, if they were handing out leaflets quietly, I mean, I guess we'd all say, well, we don't like the content but they're permitted to do that unless they cross the hate speech line. That isn't what they were doing. There's video of this stuff online, and they're screaming. Uh, what people did say, though, which is a bit heartening, Bill, uh, it ain't science, but it is, it is observation. People in cars were rolling down the windows and yelling at them, not for them or with them, but telling them to go away. Uh, and a lot of people apparently were doing that. So there weren't the honks of support. There were actually the shouts uh, uh, of uh, opposition. That's a good sign. But you know what, Bill? It shouldn't be – that burden should not fall entirely on the shoulders of the residents and the retailers of the city of Hamilton. We have – the police budget is $619 million. They have a job to do and they are failing us. They need to do more. And I, you know, I, hear, I hear it all the time about, well, you know, unless they break the law. Really? The cops were pretty good at carding when nobody broke the law, but they stopped people. Surely they could at least show their physical presence and stop taking photographs of people who were opposed to fascists. Like, where, where are those photos going? And for what purpose, Chief Gert? Well, that's a question again for tomorrow, isn't it? It is. It is. You, you, I don't want to reveal yeah, all I'm, the questions. I'm, I'm getting a pretty good idea what the agenda is going to be now. Right. This is, and that's that's helpful. It's insightful to understand what's going to happen. And I'm I'm, I'm sure that police are listening to this as well. And I'm sure they're going to have some sort of a, a response to the sorts of stuff that you've asked here and that you're talking about. Uh, but I, you know, I, I want to hear from the BIAs. I want to hear from you know the, the there's an organization, of course, of all the BIAs together too that look at this. If I'm got a small business and these guys show up. And intimidate the people that could be potential customers. I got a problem with that. I mean, that's my living. Well, and these are independent retailers and restaurant owners, shopkeepers. Uh, it makes a difference. All you need to do is have ten people who were going to come on Saturday not show up, and it it directly impacts your bottom line. These are not big box retailers, corporate stores. These are in individual independent retailers. It makes a difference. They're also, by the way, Bill, um, they have also, the Yellow Vesters have also shown up at Gore Park. Well, the downtown BIA should also uh, be aware of that and be ready to take action and to involve the police uh, as soon as it happens. Because if people are going to stay away from Gore Park and downtown on a Saturday because the Yellow Vesters have moved it into the retail or BIA areas, um, this is not going to end well. Something's well, I, I going to happen. Wherever it is, Graham, whether it's Gore Park, whether it's City Hall, whether it's Lime Ridge Mall, I don't care where it is. If there is a circumstance in this community where people are afraid to go to some location because they're afraid of what might happen to them, because of intimidation or right. the, the threat of, of who knows what, then we got a problem in this community. We do, and it is spreading. It is not, it is not diminishing at all. I mean, Bill, all you have to do is look at the, the, the rainbow crosswalk in front of City Hall and all, all the skid marks that are there again. Like, Bill, I don't know about you, but I've stopped at that light, I don't know, hundreds, sure. maybe thousands yeah. of times in, over the years. I've never heard anybody squeal tires. Now, people drive too fast, but they don't tend to squeal tires. How is it possible 
that the, the rainbow crosswalk has skid marks all over it. Well, there's only one way. That's people doing it on purpose. Sure. So it's a small gesture, but people are doing that sort of thing. And then there's much bigger stuff. As, as we saw at the fr- front page of the spec today, there's a family in Ancaster, a Jewish family, uh, whose property is, is being uh, attacked every, every weekly with swastikas painted on their, their driveway and so on. Uh, it, it, hate does not take the long weekend off. And in that regard, I'd invite everybody, Bill, who can, please come down on Saturday and just show your support against hate and support and love of your city uh, and spend an hour with us. Uh, it would be greatly appreciated. Well, and hopefully we'll see some of that turnout. And I don't know who else is going to show up there, too, but that's part of the problem. I mean, the the, the people that are perpetrating this sort of stuff, they love conflict. They love people screaming at them. That's I mean, that, they, do they want to create that, that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't give them that platform. That's part of the problem. But the, one of the things that I'm hoping is that, you know, coming up at the mayor's meeting, we're going to try to talk to the mayor and to Cameron Crush about this uh, after they have their meeting. Uh, there was that report that came out a couple of months ago that said that Hamilton has more incidents of hate crime than any other city per capita, per capita. in this country. Yeah. Uh, that's, I know city council don't like to talk about that, and some of them even said, oh, I'm not so sure about the numbers. That's the story. And, yeah, well. and that's a black mark on this community. And we have to understand and develop some sort of a strategy to say, let's not be that anymore. We've got to do something about this. And police services have a role to play in that. City council has a role to play in that, and so does the greater community. Uh, but we're not going to do it if we're sitting on that corner and that corner and not talking to each other about this and being honest about our feelings. Well, that's right. And you mentioned, of course, what you mean, Sam Marula said that he just didn't buy the StatsCan results. I mean, I don't know what research methodology Sam is using, but uh, you know, StatsCan's pretty legit. And uh, this is what has happened. These are reports. They're based on reports to to the police. Like the anti-Semitic Ancaster incident? Uh, exactly. Um, we, hear, uh, we don't even hear now because it's such a, a semi-regular thing about, you know, tombstones being kicked over in Jewish cemeteries, a number of things like this. We we know about the attacks on the mosque and, the you know, the attempted arsons and things of this nature. I, I, I don't want people across the country to think that's Hamilton. Nor do I. And we are a multicultural city, and we have been for, you know, for many years, and we will continue. And we need to embrace the variety, diversity of our, of our residents. And uh, we have to stand in opposition to hate, even if you feel safe, even if nobody's bugging you, even if no one's shouting at you, spitting on you, painting your garage, telling you to go back where you came from. This is the very time you need to stand up to, you know, with people in this city who are suffering. Um, and uh, that's why I'm doing it. I'm also a member of the LGBTQ plus community. So as much as I'm not being attacked personally, I have been in the past, but not, not for a long time. That's why I'm there. It's the right thing to do, Bill. We need to help each other. Well, I'm going to assume that the police have some responses to this. And, and I'm hoping it's going to be a fruitful meeting tomorrow uh, when you sit down with them and, and have these discussions. I want you to come back later on in the week, maybe on Friday. The meeting is going to be I'd Thursday, to, late yeah. Thursday. So yeah. let's let's come back and we can we can do a post game on this and find okay. out exactly okay. what was discussed and what some of the solutions are. Because uh, I'm I'm getting the sense, obviously from the mayor's office and certainly from Chief Gert's office, that there's a willingness now to sit down and try to to find some some common ground and some solutions here. Uh, we'll see just how far that goes. Yeah, if that is their intention, yes. The meeting is certainly a good thing to have happen. Let's see what happens at the meeting, and then we'll decide if, if we're making progress. Absolutely. Thanks for coming in today, Thanks, and good luck much. tomorrow. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, the Board of Education stuff that's happening. And, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about this over the last couple of months since the uh, the new curriculum was announced. And then the Ford government, of course, decided to scrap that and we went backwards. You know the, the story on this now. Well, uh, Tuesday is the day that uh, the, the children are going back to school. Uh, and uh, it could be a different look for some of them uh, because of the curriculum and also because of some of the staffing decisions that have had to be made. Bring us up to speed on what uh, is going to be happening and how the Hamilton Board is dealing with this. We're pleased to welcome Bill Torrin, Superintendent of Programming for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, to the Bill Kelly Show. Bill, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Oh, thank you, Bill. It's good to be on. Well, you know, these guys, you guys in education, of course, you just sit around and get eight weeks off, and then, of course, you gear up the day before Labor Day, right? I'm, I'm just being facetious, obviously. <laughs> you guys have been crazy busy, I know, with the, all the stuff that's gone on in the last little while, I'm sure. Uh, absolutely. We've uh, we've been very busy. We've got new curriculum, like our health and phys ed curriculum in elementary, that's that's come to us. So we're we're working to prepare our schools and, and communicate to our community around the changes and how we'll be... Uh, how we'll be supporting student learning through these these new curricula. You guys have had a chance now to to go through the the curriculum. What are your thoughts on this, Bill? Are you and the administration are you comfortable with what the, they propose now? Well, I mean, we're in a really fortunate position um, because a lot of what is um, has come down in the curriculum around um, parent exemptions um, is part of our past practice. We've been doing we've provided elements of that uh, in the past that. The curriculum itself fits in with our commitment to equity and inclusion in terms of its content. And we're really excited also about the new learning for around mental health. And there's learning about concussions and concussion safety in every grade from one to eight. And, and I think that those are really, really important learning for our, for our students and um, really helps us to have safer, more inclusive schools. Well, I like the idea. We were talking with Alex Johnstone about it, the chair of the board, of course, uh, mm-hmm. about these just a couple of days ago, and it, it was relatively new at that time, so I know you guys didn't have a whole lot of time for analysis on this, but uh, it's actually, in, in some ways, uh, I guess like any policy bill, there's some good and there's some bad in there. I, I like, as you've just mentioned, some of the enhancements that they've talked about, the mental health aspect and concussions and things of this nature. Um, I know there is some concern, though, raised by uh, some boards uh, about the change in grades of what, how some stuff is going to be taught and when it's going to be introduced. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know that Alex uh, expressed some concern about that, but uh, I, I suppose it is what it is. There's not much you can do about it at this stage. Well, uh, you know, from, from our point of view, it's, it's um, you know, the curriculum is something that, that we are required to deliver. Um, but our practice has always been to um, delay delivery of that, uh, the growth and development, um, sexual health learning until um, later in the school year. So, so our teachers know their, know their students, know their, their students' um, circumstance and, and context better and, and make sure that the, the learning that does happen is, is appropriate, you know, age-appropriate and developmentally appropriate and, and really to provide that opportunity for families to make an informed choice about if they want their child to per- participate in that sexual health and growth and development learning. So we're, you know, where, where the curriculum is asking us to um, look in different areas, um, our educators uh, will be well prepared to, 
to work in, in a sensitive way to with their classes. From what I've read of this, Bill, maybe mm-hmm. I want to get your, or your thoughts on this as well. Sure. I understand that it seems as if the curriculum actually is building in some flexibility for the teachers as well. There's something called teacher prompts. In other words, they can kind of make a, a call an audible, if you can use a football term, and say, yeah. well, we're going to go this way. Maybe I'm going to teach it this way. It's, a, it's, it's not carved in stone, some aspects of it anyway. Yeah, the you know with with our with our curricula, the the prompts are they are uh, as they're described, they're suggestions, they're prompts for teachers to give them a sense of what it could look like in the classroom. One of the things that we do is um, we look to OFIA, which is the Ontario uh, Physical and Health Education uh, Association, uh, and to uh, some of their resources that they also provide for each grade. So they kind of work in partnership. Uh, with the ministry to provide uh, building off of the curriculum and provide those resources for educators. So, you know, the, we've, we've got the prompts. Uh, teachers can use their professional judgment um, around their learning materials that they use to deliver the curriculum. And then we bring in those, uh, we make them uh, those extra resources available. So it, it really empowers the educator to make, make a good choice in terms of um, how they want to work through that curriculum with their classroom. And, and that's, that's I think, a key part of this, too. As you mentioned, the first couple of months of school, it's going to be, well, the teacher and the, and the students getting to know each other and develop Absolutely. who knows what and which way they want to go on this. So yeah. uh, you're probably going to see different approaches from different teachers depending on what the classroom is like and how they're going to respond to this. Uh, absolutely. So there isn't. Um, so there, there wouldn't really be a lockstep approach across the entire and the entire board in in a grade. So every classroom might look slightly different based on that common curriculum. Um, so and, and teachers need that flexibility. They need to um, be able to understand that. Uh, you know, in in our community, we may have a, a large number of newcomer students. So I have to work differently around the vocabulary of the curriculum in this area, uh, and I need to go at a perhaps a different pace, and I need a, a different kind of activity to. Um, another classroom in a different community within our city. Bill, as you mentioned, the Hamilton Board's had this uh, opt-out policy for some time right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, how much uptake did you get in it previously? Well, we didn't collect data on the number of um, families that decided to um, have um, their children not participate in elements of the curriculum. Um, we know that uh, it was common in many schools, again, uh, different communities, um, had uh, different um, uh, uh, different approaches. So some families um, uh, or some communities had a number of families who were interested in learning more about the curriculum to the point where a principal would hold a an information night. Other in other communities, it was you know one or two families, and it was a conversation with the classroom teacher and perhaps the principal before a decision was made to withdraw. the The new direction from the ministry, however is um it, very much and we will have to we'll have to put it together um in a policy here at the board but it's very much about um you know you it's all of the learning or that you would be exempted from and our past practice was was more about you know uh, what specific part of the learning is there anything you can continue in so we'll, we'll there is a little bit of change here um for families but uh uh, but we expect, you know, my expectation at this point is we won't have a size, uh, sizable growth in exemptions. Uh, and the other element to this, too, there's a, no, if, in fact, the parents make a decision to do that, uh, there's no penalty. It's not like, well, that, that student gets a zero then. 
Yeah, absolutely, Bill. There's, uh, the ministry is really clear uh, that there will be no academic penalty and the student's uh, grade will be based on other elements of the curriculum and not what they um, what the family had decided they wanted to exempt their child from. Now, how's, maybe walk us through that process. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, you mentioned there's going to be, a, 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 I guess, letters or some form of communication sent out yeah. saying, oh, by the way, we're going to do this on such and such a day. Uh, there's, uh, what is it, three weeks notice you ha- that you give the parents? So we, our past practice has, has been, uh, and the expectation now uh, appears to be about a month, uh, but it, that's been our prax- uh, practice. We would send letters home uh, informing parents of the curriculum expectations that were being taught um, around growth and development, human uh, sexuality, or sexual health, and um, uh, and then provided uh, an opportunity for parents if they had questions to connect with the classroom teacher or the principal, uh, and then if they if they wanted to um, have their child uh, held out of some of the learning, uh, they were able to do that. So it wasn't a it wasn't necessarily our old practice wasn't necessarily an exemption letter. The the new ministry um, the kind of sample templates they've created is is very much um, very similar to our past practice, but also um, really makes it clear that a family can uh, uh, sort of tick the box to say they want to be exempted. So um, we'll have to we'll have to make some adjustments to our to our existing practice, but families will in, in the end we will create a a process where they're making an informed decision uh, whether to to have their child engaged in the learning or not. Is that part of the process is, is your past experience bill that there's usually a, that first conversation that well what are you actually going to get into? What are you going to teach this exactly That's- what stuff's going to be covered? Is, Absolutely, absolutely. Because you know, we know that uh, um, a lot of our work is 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 really around communication and and understand helping parents understand um, uh, what's the learning really look like past the language of the curriculum. So you see the curriculum language, uh, and um, we need to we need to break that down. That's our edge you speak to use that that phrase, and we need to break that down and and make sure that. We're making uh, our parents aware of what that actually means in the classroom, and through those conversations, sometimes families have a have a very small thing they're not comfortable with. And you know, in the past, we've we we have that flexibility. Um, this it does not quite appear that we'll have the same flexibility, but we intend to have the same conversations um, at this point as we as we start to project what our new process would look like. With uh, Bill Torrens from the Hamilton Board of Education, I want to change gears if we could for a second, and sure. uh, we'll obviously be in touch with you in, in the months mm-hmm. ahead as that program rolls out. Mm-hmm. But uh, going back again to May, June, just at near the end of last school year, Bill, there were a number of concerns about staffing in the schools, again, because of some of the provincial government policies. Right. Some right. teachers got notices. Uh, I, I talked to some teaching assistants and weren't sure if they were going to get their jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, with school upon us now, uh, what's, what's the status there? What's the situation? Well, uh, you know, human resources is in my area, Bill, and uh, however, we are um, we're continuing to work with uh, we're continuing to work with our um, uh, our employee groups. We were we're staffed uh, for our schools and, and ready to move forward for a successful year. Um, and as um, anything comes from the ministry in terms of additional funding or changes in class sizes, then you know our team here in, in human resources. Uh, then uh, gets to work in terms of what that looks like for schools. But we're we're excited and confident for uh, 
for a start to the new school year. I, I know that the boards had to make some difficult decisions, but I mean, they're contingency funds that they, they can tap into for these sorts of things. Uh, the, the, I guess the concern most parents are going to have here is, look at, they, I, I, a lot of, for a lot of people, the stuff about ratios and student ratios mm-hmm. is, is kind of inside baseball. They right. just want to know that they're going to get maximum uh, education for, for their kids in situations yeah. like that. And, and yeah. the teachers obviously want to make sure that they, they're going to have the time and, the, and the, the tools to be able to, to give that to the students and not be overburdened because of the, some of the numbers. Right, and and you know we are um, some our overall class size did grow in secondary, um, elementary um, the the change wasn't quite as significant. So we're what we're confident of right now, Bill, is that uh, um, those those externals will not have or or those new parameters we're working on will will have a sizable impact on students. Uh, beginning next week, uh, where we um, where we worked really hard back in the spring in secondary school specifically is to uh, work hard to make sure as many course offerings were available to students as possible, uh, and that's where um, a lot of hard work went on um, in terms of making sure all those optional courses that engage kids and inspire kids to remain in school and and not only graduate but move on to to post secondary. Um, the, um, we want them to uh, continue. How did that work out, that process? Uh, because there was some concern, I heard from some parents anyway, uh, that some of the courses that their, their children wanted to take may not be available mm-hmm. in September. Did you have to let some of them go, chop some of those programs? Well, you know, uh, across across the board, there every year there are courses that, due to low enrollment, can't we, we simply can't run out of school on. One of the options that we have... Um, and one of our strengths as an organization is we're we're a leader in the delivery of learning through e-learning, um, and so we have that as an option for students who need need a given course that perhaps is not not able to run but can be delivered through e-learning. And we're we're moving towards up to uh, three thousand um, student seats. I'm going to call it a seat. Uh, some students take more than one e-learning course uh, in this coming year. Uh, will be delivered via e-learning. So we have a very, very um, sophisticated, modern uh, support mechanism for e-learning that allows us to um, backfill where we're not offering some courses. That being said, there, there may be some very specific courses in schools that aren't running. There are, uh, with this new uh, program that we've just talked about, that the, the, the province has just rolled out, mm-hmm. some mandatory e-learning courses uh, yeah. for later on, obviously. Yeah. Uh, as, as we've talked about on the program, Bill, that's going to be great for some students. And it's going to be challenging for some others. What, what resources can the board offer for those ones, that are, the students that are going to have problem with that? I mean, let's, let's yeah. face it, I, 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 when I went to school, I, I knew a lot of kids. If, there had to be a teacher there. There had to be somebody that they could put their hand up and said, you know, uh, yeah, Mr. Torrens, how do you do, you know, that sort of thing that may not be available to them. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, Bill, that's a great question. Um, and uh, you know, we've part of what we've come to learn about e-learning is is exactly what what you're sharing, which is without the right supports, not every student can be successful. I think when we know more, and, and we we will know more over the course of this coming year around uh, what the expectations are for for e-learning in in all students. Um, then we'll wrap support around students, and that may be um, that may be e-learning, um, but 
where students enrolled in e-learning, which we do right now, but they know they can go to their school library. We'll call them Learning Commons now, but they can go to their school library or they can go to Learning Resource where we have Learning Resource teachers and get the additional support that they need to continue to to continue learning. So um, we have educators in schools who their role is to support kids if, um, who need extra support in the classroom, and, and e-learning is, is just a different sort of classroom. So we're, we are confident that we'll be able to um, support students uh, through, through the ministry's expectations. So the way the ministry wants to see this stuff, uh, I guess, pr- presented is very, really, uh, I guess, essentially a variation on what you're already doing. Uh, it is. We'll be we'll be building on a, we'll be building on our our um, existing practice, in, unless the what comes from the ministry is significantly different. Uh, other issues, I know, I, I, I'm sure there's a big pile of stuff on your desk right now, or, or in your inbox right now, to mm-hmm. do with busing and stuff like that. But let's yes. let's let's leave that for the for the time being. I know that's stuff that's going to have to roll out, and and some of the stuff probably is not even going to be fully uh, digested and, and and put on the right track until you actually do a couple of days of this and find out where some of the the yeah. problems might be. It's a hectic time, though, isn't it, for the board? It is, and and I appreciate that. Uh, transportation is my area of expertise. I'm 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 program and curriculum uh, bill, so uh, I I'd be glad to have one of my colleagues. Uh, oh, absolutely. Teacher, uh, answer that, but it is, you know, it it is an exciting time of year. I always thought to myself as an educator, my New Year's Eve is is sort of Labor Day, <laughs> <laughs> Labor Day, uh, and uh, and that comes with that you know that excitement of a renewed school year, and kids are a year older than last year, and my kids are in the system here in HWDSB and you know we take photos every year it's amazing you know to watch that growth and so we you know amidst all of the things that we talk it's about that joy and excitement of a new year at school a new teacher and new experiences and and I and as a board we're going to have a wonderful year ahead well, we sure hope so. Uh, some changes, but you know, change means opportunity, and I know a lot of people are excited about that. Uh, mm-hmm. Teachers and and administrators as well. Uh, we'll certainly stay in touch. Bill, thanks so much for the uh, the time today. Really appreciate thank, it. Thank you, Bill. Take care now. You betcha. That's a Bill Torrance, Superintendent of Program for the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, big news yesterday, of course, of uh, in Oklahoma. An Oklahoma judge uh, ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay $572.1 million to the state, and uh, essentially for fueling the opioid epidemic in that country, in, in that state specifically, and by what they said, deceptively marketing addictive painkillers. Uh, the sum was actually substantially less than investors as expected. And uh, as a result, their shares actually went up after this. Uh, they're appealing this, uh, as you might expect. But there, there's uh, some precedent here and, and a number of other lawsuits pending both sides of the border in Canada and the United States uh, to do with opioids. Uh, how does this settlement impact what could be happening? Uh, joining us to talk about this is a Toronto defense lawyer, Ari Goldkind. Uh, Ari, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate the time today. Pleasure. Great to be on with you. Is it is a precedent setting for a, a, a state to actually sue, well, in this case, Big Pharma, successfully? Yes. And if you go a little bit further as to next steps, there is now a gigantic settlement that's been offered by the Sackler family. And for people who don't know that name, that's the family that essentially owns everything to do with the OxyContin world. They've made about 36 to $37 billion in profits over the course of this drug and its ravages, particularly in America. And they have offered a massive, massive settlement, given that they can see the writing in the wall, on the wall in America, 
uh, as to what might be done here. Otherwise, they are threatening to go into what people uh, obviously call bankruptcy. So they've offered a massive settlement of around 11 to $12 billion. So the direct answer to your question is yes, what is happening in the state that you're talking about now. And interestingly, part of this is a discussion about what the Sackler family is doing around the world. But the writing is on the wall in America and Canada here. And it's been a saga that if people understand just how dangerous this has been and just how much not only patients have been misled about the chronic pain potential help of these drugs doctors themselves if you accept the reporting on this themselves were massively misled through the late 90s early 2000s there's a a lot of misinformation and a lot of accusations being made and and you're right i mean there's a a a number of different things that are happening now and and legal actions that are being taken right here uh but this was this was a government that was doing this we've heard of the idea of class action lawsuits in the past there've been a few of those i guess against the the tobacco industry uh, but th- I, this this really puts pharma on notice i guess Ari, that uh, that these guys are serious about this and uh, this may be the thin edge of the wedge it does and in fact you know you, you brought up something that i was going to take listeners to because it's important to remember the big tobacco example here because first of all you're right class actions very different but it's a real issue in the states There is no downside for plaintiffs' lawyers to sue these companies because different than in Canada, which many Canadians don't know, if you lose in Canada going to court, if you lose, you sue somebody, you lose, you pay the other side legal fees. That has a very significant chilling effect, by the way, which I think is a good thing, that that we're not as litigious a society with the kinds of hundreds of millions of dollar payouts, in my view, to people who don't for one second deserve them. The flip side to that coin is because there's so much pressure now on Purdue and the Sackler family. Let's really call it the Sackler family. They have sort of an octopus-like corporate structure. I'm not going to bore you with it, but their tentacles are in every aspect of this drug. They see the writing on the wall, not only from the state and the award you just asked me about, but there are about 2,000 lawsuits right now, not 200, not 20, 2,000 major lawsuits throughout the United States And what the Sackler family has done is said, we will have a meeting, which they just recently had, where we will offer to settle on everything involved here, each and every one of the 2,000, for roughly $11 billion. But you mentioned big tobacco, so why is that relevant? Because what the Sackler family has done, and it's fascinating to me, not as a lawyer, but as just an intellectually curious person, (laughs) is they see that the writing is on the wall for opioids and oxy in the state. So what have they done? They have massively, and when I say massively, increased their spend, their training programs, and their reach into other countries in the world that have not had their product in it. They're sending all of these people in to sell billions of dollars to China, Brazil, all these other countries, and their response when somebody in those countries says, no, no, we don't want to copy the states and what happened with the opioid epidemic in the states. Epidemic in the states. You know what the word that they've created for all these other countries is? What's that? It's called opiophobia. <laughs> so you know what I think of these other words, you know, all these other phobias and isms and all of this. Mm-hmm. That is literally the Sackler family response through their company that's set up to create this drug in a market for it throughout the world to create billions of profits in the world, given that it's not happening in the U.S. anymore, and that company is called Mundi Pharma, M-U-N-D-I Pharma, and it's fascinating to read 
about what this family is doing to increase their market in the rest of the world. And this is the thing that shocked me as I was watching the coverage on this yesterday afternoon, Aria, is, you know, with this settle or this this penalty, <clears throat> excuse me, that's been imposed, uh, uh, maybe there's a little part of us, the, the good part of us, that we thought, well, maybe these guys are going to be contrite and thought, maybe we're going to have to change this. So obviously, we're, you know, we're selling something that's damaging to people. Uh, they're ramping up business. I mean, their shares went up. After the, their shareholders are ecstatic because they thought this was going to be a, like a multi-billion dollar penalty. And these guys look as if, well, you know what, we dodged the bullet here. I mean, we can pay these guys off because, you know, we're going to make 10 times that much money, when, by, as you say, by going to foreign markets. Right. And if you look at the marketing into the poorer markets where, by the way, and this is really interesting, doctors in the other markets around the world have been very, very gun shy, very, very reticent to use narcotics. It's not like America where everybody's sucking pills all day and using their insurance checks and their other kinds of checks in a much more well-off country like the States to down all these pills. In other countries, doctors do not prescribe them. So there is a marketing flow. Picture all the conferences, the steak dinners, the buffet breakfast, where they're trying to convert all of these medical practitioners in other parts of the world to say, you know, cancer is really, really, really bad. And the only way to treat chronic pain for your cancer patients is by using our product. And the nub of it for people to understand is that the proof is not in the pudding that this drug actually does cure or potentially help significantly outweighing the risks serious chronic pain for people but this is where the profit market is to the point where the Sackler family is even willing to essentially disband the company in the states they're going to pay about 11 12 billion dollars if the deal sheet is accepted and 4 million of that ready for this you'll like this one 4 billion 4 billion of that settlement offer is for giving in kind that's a fancy legal term for saying you're not giving dollars, but we're going to give something else, which is the drug that overturns an opioid overdose. They're going to give $4 billion free, free in my air quotes, mm-hmm. as part of this settlement for the $11 billion. Meanwhile, remember, as I said at the top, the family has made $35 billion from this so far. Who else in a situation like this, with this judgment that was made in Oklahoma, who else is liable? I mean, are the drug companies for doing this, and, and like I say, if they, they, they hoodwink doctors and, and the medical profession. But, I mean, uh, my understanding is that there's a whole series of, of steps they have to go through before these things could actually be okay. Would, did, did nobody raise any red flags about, about things like addiction when, when this was being tested? Well, you ask another great question, so I'm going to give a plug that people should seek something out in this day and age where nobody reads more than 140 characters. Even though I'm 45 years old, I'm not a dinosaur. I've watched 60 Minutes since I was a kid. And 60 Minutes every Sunday is fantastic, and I believe me, I own no shares in CBS. But they did a full expose of how literally your question feeds its way down through the pipelines and channels. And they had an interview with a doctor who's now behind bars. So remember, the Sackler family, not behind bars, living in the Hamptons or probably in some $200 billion house in midtown Manhattan, And one of the doctors who knew what he was doing was wrong, but had a profit machine going in a small town where he's sort of selling six trillion pills every week to about 60 people. You can figure out the math there and the funny business there. He was serving time and he's now explaining how exactly this works. So to your question about pointing fingers, I really do believe, and again, maybe my criminal defense lawyer hat comes on here, maybe even in a prosecutorial way. If anybody doesn't think 
every law, every doctor, every consultant who went to the Fontainebleau Hotel, who went to Newport Beach in L.A. to these conferences, who got a free trip to the Bahamas and went to Atlantis and did some diving in the Shark Tank, all at the expense of Purdue Pharma and knowing the pressure, the epidemic to sell, 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 how they will escape, even though they're not the big fish on the, you know, on the rod. There is so much blame here to go around, and I really do think that authority shouldn't just be going after the deepest pockets. You've got to go after the enablers, particularly physicians. And this is why it matters, by the way, to me, this answer. You know, the Sackler family doesn't take the Hippocratic oath to serve their patients. You know what doctors have to take an oath to. Mm-hmm. So we don't, we don't just talk about that when it comes to blood transfusions and surgeries and bedside manner. This is a violation at the deepest core of your oath as a doctor. So for doctors who did this and were part of this, knowing and sitting at the trough at the buffet table to continue to serve patients, I actually think their licenses should be taken away. I mean, there's, we're hearing some ugly stories about this is going on, and and that, you know the, the, that part of it, obviously, the doctors that prescribe this stuff. Uh, I'm I'm hearing stories from police. I actually even here in Ontario now. Uh, about some doctors that are running scams right now where they're actually getting some kickbacks by prescribing this stuff and getting, you know, sending people with false prescriptions so that stuff can get out there on the street. I mean, this uh, this thing in Oklahoma is really just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it, Ari? Absolutely, and there's a lot more in this story to come and wait until the people start caring more about what's going on in other places in the world, what the Sackler family's doing. But sure, we're we're just seeing the beginning, as you said, of the story in the courts in the United States, when you have 2,000 lawsuits at play and a family coming to the table saying we'll break up our company and create a public trust, that isn't the end of the headline. So why would uh, governments love to step in and, and uh, you know, that's, it's a black and white issue oftentimes for elected officials. Why don't they just say, look, uh, this is bad stuff. This Oxycontin's bad. The, the, this whole thing is bad. Uh, it's outlawed now. We're not allowed. You can't produce this stuff anymore. I, I'm not so sure it's, it's all that heavily prescribed now. I know in Canada the rules are very, very different. But remember, one of the things that people should know, once you take one thing away, somebody else comes in. And that's why right now, to raise a different subject, you know we're in the middle of a fentanyl. Yeah. Uh, real, real problem, which the criminal courts are struggling to deal with, the, the authorities are struggling to deal with. And just why people should understand that's such a big issue is because it's very, very easy to make. It's synthesized. You don't need to grow it in Colombia with Pablo Escobar. It's very cheap to make, and it's almost untraceable coming in through the border. So there's always going to be somebody to pick up the vacuum. Uh, of this, but uh, Oxycontin may be on its way out, as I said, prescription-wise, very, very soon in a whole bunch of North American jurisdictions, particularly Canada, but uh, the rest of the world uh, certainly hasn't had that answer uh, that question answered for them yet. I guess what exacerbates the situation here, though, is as one of the physicians I was talking to about this a couple of weeks ago said, uh, there is a legitimate use for for these the, these drugs, uh, you know, severe surgeries, things of this nature, uh, but not for chronic pain, and and th- that's where the the misdiagnosis comes in, and why that you probably are prescribing the wrong things. Somebody, nobody should be getting prescriptions for this on a consistent basis. Maybe two or three days after knee replacement surgery or something, but if you got a bad back, you're not supposed to be taking this stuff. That's right. And we are in a world where the addictive nature of things that we're addicted to are not discussed enough from all of us texting while we're driving and while we pretend we point our finger and thumb our nose at the car next to us where the driver's looking at their phone and we go, how dare you do this? Meanwhile, you're holding your phone 
in your hand checking it at the next light. This is a world where the addictive nature of certain things needs to be taken much, much more seriously. And anything as powerful like this, I go right back to the practitioner, the physician that prescribes it, knowing the lay of the land. There really should be some explaining to do here when your oath, and by the way, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I see people tell and take the oath to tell the truth every day they hit the witness stand, and within six seconds their nose is growing out past Pinocchio. These oaths either have to mean something or they don't. And I, again, still think that the buck doesn't just stop at the Sackler family. Uh, Prosecutors, attorneys general in the states particularly, really have to look further down the food chain. Uh, Very quickly, though, uh, you mentioned about the difference in law on both sides of the border here. Uh, I'm told that there's uh, the inklings of some sort of uh, action like this in British Columbia right now. But does does that uh, you lose, you pay element uh, make people a little more trepidatious before they jump in like they do in the states? Absolutely. And you know what? As much as given that the subject we're talking about is salacious, that's a very, very good part of our Canadian courts where most people listening to you right now don't have to, or particularly small business people, don't have to constantly quake in their boots that somebody, whether it be as the result of a hashtag or some other bogus claim, is taking them to court. Because don't forget, so many times the people get sued, particularly in the States, often here, but more in the States, it's a shakedown. Because what happens is you do a cost of business analysis, and if you're sued for $100 million and you know your legal team is going to charge you $15 million to defend yourself, well, you're going to write a check to the extortionist. Sorry, sorry, let's change that word from extortionist to plaintiff. You're going to write them a check for $5 million to make it go away. So I'm very, very happy that in Canada we have not gone the way of the U.S. dodo bird and plaintiff's lawyers here have to really think twice and see a lot of merit in the case. Otherwise, they're going to be reaching into their pocket to pay the other side's legal fees. And I can assure you, plaintiff lawyers don't like reaching into their pocket to pay the other side's lawyers. Ari, always a pleasure to have you on the program with your uh, your candid views on this. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, sir. Good talking with you again. Eric Goldkind, of course, Toronto defense lawyer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.